It's the Tuesday Tout Edition. We'll talk with longtime writer at AskRotoman.com and the newer RotomansGuide.com. It's Peter Kreutzer, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Robinson waits. Here comes the pitch. And there goes a line drive to left field. Swan is after it. He leaps it over his head against the wall. Here comes Gillian. Feet close together. Larson is ready. Gets the sign. Two strikes, ball one. Here comes the pitch. Strike three. A no hitter. A perfect game for John Larson. He levels the bat a couple of times. Shall kicks and he fires. Rose Wayne. Turn it, turn it, get out, get out. in the air to deep center. Finley back, away back, on the track, at the wall, gone! A three-run home run for Scott Brocious. Scott Brocious might well be... The left-handers line. The 0-2 pitch on the way. Swag, it's over! He has done it! High fastball, Randy Johnson being mobbed by Scott Bradley down to greet him and the entire Mariner team here on the 2nd of June. It ends at 9 Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, April the 15th. It's show number 25 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we'll be talking with the longtime writer at AskRotoman.com and the newer RotomansGuide.com, Peter Kreutzer, about doubt wars, PEDs, no-cap fantasy leagues, his studs and duds, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the experts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our Metric Minute, analyst Ryan Bloomfield will talk about starting pitcher ratings. And in the Minor League Minute, BaseballHQ.com minor league analyst Rob Gordon talks about Boston second base prospect Mookie Betts. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us on the Tuesday Tout edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Income tax filing deadline is today in the United States. We gotta talk some baseball. Yes, make sure you get those taxes in today or face the wrath of the IRS. In Canada, of course, you have two more weeks to not do your taxes before you go to the closet and pull out that shoebox full of receipts and tax slips and, for some reason, a copy of a hardware store flyer from last June. Here's my advice. Just do it. Hey, that sounds familiar. So let's just do it with our Tuesday Tout Edition and our special guest expert, the author of AskRotoman.com, the newer site RotomansGuide.com, He's the Tout Wars Commissioner and an all-around great guy, Peter Kreutzer. Peter, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hi there, Patrick. Good to have you aboard. Uh, before we get started, I always like to ask our Tuesday Tout experts, uh, how many drafts did you participate in this year, and do you still play in a home league? Uh, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I consider all my leagues home leagues now. Um, I play in three. I play in an AL, an NL, and a mixed. And um, so I play in uh, Tab Wars NL. I play in the XFL Mixed League. And my home league is, is the American Dream League, which was one of the first leagues that started. I joined some 20 years ago. Um, 
and uh, have been playing in that league ever since. And those are we have, those are the guys who live. They all live in New York, and um, we're, that's my home league, I guess, my real home league. And how are your teams doing? It's a week into the season, a little early to throw up the uh, danger warnings or panic signals. But uh, how are your teams doing? Well, the um, the AL team is in first place, which is always nice. Yeah. Um, and the NL team is in last place, which is not so nice. I think that one's more interesting because um, I t- adopted because of the conversion in towers to um, on base percentage. I saw a potential market inefficiency in in the price of on base percentage, and I ended up buying a lot of star players with decent on base percentages at. At relatively, you know, at scarce positions for the most part, Joey Votto not so, but um, Hanley Ramirez and Troy Tulowitzki, and um, and I made a team that um, had a lot of big players, one big pitcher, one closer, and then um, and then a lot of one dollar guys. And so far, I mean, I knew coming out that I was going to need to do some work to to fill in the holes, and so far that hasn't happened. The big guys aren't off to big starts for the most part, so there's work to be done there. But I, I think it's a really interesting um, possibility, and I'm, I'm not um, I'm not despairing at this point. Yeah, after a, such a short period, especially with the ratio categories, everybody's got their uh, tale of woe about uh, a big hitter, a $30 hitter who's off to a slow start. But really, you have to be very patient because the slow start will eventually give way to a, a, a hot streak, which will bring everything back into balance. So uh, I guess the question is, how long do you wait before you really start wondering about the underperformance of key players? Well, in this case, I'm not going to worry about underperformance of key players because I'm not the guys that you always worry about are the fifteen dollar guys who all of a sudden go in the tank for two months and you wonder if whether they were really worth the money in the first place. But um, absent injuries, these other guys and and one one of the guys I have in that league that I do worry about is Ryan Zimmerman, who um, is hobbled, can't throw the ball, which is makes him not a really effective third baseman. Um, but who seems like he's going to play? He's going to keep playing at uh, some play at first base. They'll they'll try and squeeze him in at third base, and he's and it's not affecting his hitting. Um, in any case, for those types of guys, you just can't worry about them. The, you have to ride them. If they have a bad month or two, they're going to bounce back and have a good month that's going to make up for it or make up for a big part of it. And um, and if they don't, then you're you know you're stuck. I don't think there's much you can do. Especially in a single league format where the uh, pickings on the free agent wire are going to be pretty thin, it's a little different in a 15 team or 12 team mixed. Where if somebody starts off slowly, chances are there's going to be somebody out there who's at least worth looking at in the free agent pool. And in 15 team leagues, that seems to argue in favor of spending your sort of four and five dollar bids on outfielders rather than on infielders because there's going to be way more surplus outfielders in the free agent pool to grab once the auction's over. I totally agree with that, and also um, the uh, in the mixed league you have the you have um, the higher replacement rate, and you have um, the chance to buy up the expensive scarce position guys and and uh, pick off outfielders all day long, all season long. I I remember once writing an article for BaseballHQ.com that made the same argument about starting pitchers. So many of them um, come out of nowhere during the season that you can actually get by with a strategy of rostering a couple of 
fairly secure top-level guys like Clayton Kershaw, who never gets hurt and uh, always delivers value, and then uh, have a rest the rest of your starting rotation be four and five dollar guys because they're fungible too. Well, that was my approach in the NL league because it's actually true in the only leagues in terms of pitching. Not so much with hitting, but um, there's an awful lot of pitching value. Not so much starting pitching, but pitching value that comes out of the um, free agent claims during the course of the season. And so if you have a poorly performing starter, let's say, let's call him Edwin Jackson, (laughs) you can bench him and replace him with a middle reliever for the time being until he gets right. Jackson last year was disastrous in five of the months of the season, but he had a, he had a fantastic um, August, I think. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to catch a little lightning in the bottle there. But the point is that you can manipulate your roster so that you can protect yourself a little bit from the poorly performing guys and hope you catch a few of those $1 guys and have them become mid-level pitchers for you all season long. Peter, you're also the commissioner of the Tout Wars mixed competition and uh, have been a longtime organizer of Tout Wars. And one of the cool things going on with the Tout Wars competition is a public competition that is called Doubt Wars. How does Doubt Wars work, first of all? Uh, well, Doubt Wars, um, Doubt Wars is, it started, I don't know, Todd Zola and I started Doubt Wars um, in the early days of, of Tout Wars. We organized competitions that were basically shadow drafts of the of the Tout Wars drafts. So we encouraged people to send us in their their lists of, of players, putting together a two hundred and sixty dollar roster based on the prices that were paid in Tout Wars plus one dollar per player. So you, you would, they, these would have to be the players that you would go the extra dollar than what the the Tout War owner paid for them and put together a $260 team, and then we compared them against what the actual um, Tout Wars standings were and, um, and had a little fun with it. It was, um, back then, we had also had, um, it was a lot of work, and we stopped after a while. Um, but we picked it up again last year. We had a, a kind of um, casual contest of it. And this year we've got um, the stat service on Roto, handling the stats so that people can check them out all season long. Um, the owners can go look at their team. It's a draft and hold league, so there are no roster moves. And, but they're compared, your draft and hold Doubt Wars team is compared to the draft and hold Tout Wars teams. And at the end of the year, we'll see how, how these guys stacked up. Last year in the AL League, um, Glenn Colton and, and Rick Wolf actually had the best um, team of all the of all the uh, draft and hold teams from draft day their team was the best but they actually didn't win the championship they they lost that to Barry Schechter that's super interesting i imagine one another interesting aspect of it must be the players most chosen by the doubt warriors what what player names popped out when you looked at which players were taken as obvious um, public publicly perceived as obvious bargains um this you know, I expected it to be, actually, I, there to be some real standout names, and it's a, I think it's a measure of how tight the Tout Wars drafts are, that it, there aren't really crazy obvious choices. In the, in the National League, the most selected player was uh, Mike Olt, who went for, in Tout Wars, went for a very reasonable $5. Um, but I, so some 20 um, Tout Wars owners said $6 on Olt, 
which is, I guess, a, a recommendation. But he still is a guy who is very likely not to be worth the five dollars in the first place. So it's. Um, I don't think that shows a market inefficiency. It just shows that there, that's a swing for the fences. If Ol gets four hundred at bats, he's going to he's going to be worth that. But he could easily hit you know one twenty three in the first two months and be out of base, be out of the major leagues very quickly. Um, Rex Brothers, in a similar situation, um, expected to take over as the closer in Colorado, but and he went for six dollars in, in uh, Tout Wars. Um, Nineteen owners took. Uh, this is nineteen out of thirty-five Tout Wars owners took him for uh, seven dollars, but it, that's also a swing for the fences. It's a good price, but it's uh, but he's a, he's a risky play. He's still walking a lot of guys. It's, it, it, he could easily go all season and not be the closer in, in Colorado. Um, some in the American League, uh, Grady Sizemore was at the top of the heap. Um, it wasn't clear on when we drafted exactly what his role was going to be in in Boston. So, um, thirteen of the thirty-four American League Doubt Warriors um, took Grady Sizemore for seven. And then three guys who I think are really interesting because when I looked at the AL draft auction afterwards, I thought these guys, all three of these guys, were underpriced. Mike Moustakis for uh, 11, Jose Altuve for 19, and Alejandro Daza for 11 were the next three most selected American League Doubt Warriors. And um, and those are good prices. They they just happen to have, you know, save a buck or two in the in the auction. Um, they were good buys by the American League Doubt Warrior. Finally, in the mixed league, um, Trevor Rosenthal was the most taken guy for 17. I'm not sure why. Um, that's that seems like uh, a good price, but not a spectacular thing. Um, Justin Verlander was a good price. He was only 20 in in uh, Tau Wars, so he went for 21. And uh, Corey Kluber is you know everybody's favorite this year, or one of one of the many favorite pitchers this year. So he was taken by 13 of 49 teams for seven dollars. That's the recap. It, like I said, it's a very interesting way to, way to look at it, and it's fun for people to play as well. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Peter Kreutzer from AskRotoman.com and Commissioner of Tout Wars. And Peter, I'd like to talk with you a bit about AskRotoman.com in particular. How long have you been working at that site, or I guess it's your site, how long have you been running it? Well, um, I started writing for ESPN in 19, um, but I sold ESPN my um, player projections in 1995 when the ESPN Sports Zone went online for the first time, and um, that was the first fantasy content at uh, at the ESPN. And, and the next year I started my column, Ask Rotoman, there, and I started the site, the website around the same time um, as, to support it as a, uh, as a way of um, putting augmented information, links to the it was there was no blogging back then, but it was basically a, a place to update information and, and um, help people with their fantasy teams. And uh, askrotoman.com continues to this day. What's the philosophy of the site? What are you hoping to help uh, people accomplish, and what do you want to accomplish on your own? Uh, good, good questions. Thanks. I, I'm, I'm addicted to uh, thinking about these fantasy baseball questions and, and baseball questions in general. And the philosophy of the site is um, to be service-oriented, to, to try and answer people's questions, to help promote ideas 
that I think are valuable and, and good ones in terms of baseball and in terms of fantasy baseball play. And um, it's for me, at this point, it's a, a personal outlet for my baseball writing, some of my baseball writing, and for, um, for my thoughts about fantasy baseball. You ha- also invite uh, reader questions, hence the name Ask Rotoman, and somebody sent in an interesting question I saw on the site not long ago about Melky Cabrera's hot start. Uh, as we speak, Peter, the milkman has delivered four home runs to lead the American League and has a three twenty five batting average. And a reader wrote into you and asked, should we interpret this great performance as evidence that that Melky Cabrera is back on PEDs as he was a couple of years ago when he had his great year? And I thought your response was really well measured and really interesting. Can you just recap it for our listeners, what you told this uh, reader about Melky Cabrera? disturbing thing for me is this idea that every time somebody gets hot that um, it comes up, but are they on drugs? And it used to be, I would think that they were being painted with a broad brush and that this is that absent evidence that we should, um, you know, not tarnish their reputations. And But over the years, it's become clear that a lot of them are taking drugs for the obvious reason that as um, some players, Ryan Spielborg, who I reference in the in this um, post, uh, has written about what it feels like to be a baseball player who isn't quite good enough to be a, a regular and and to have your livelihood perhaps threatened by um, the competition for a position on a on a major league baseball team, and and then having to make the decision about whether to try and do something using um, some of these various potions to. Um, to recover faster from injury or to, to help be, get more workouts in so that you can be a little stronger, a little faster. And, um, and the, that process is a very rational one. It's one we pay, these guys get paid an unbelievable amount of money out of our, our it's our money that is going to them, that we're paying for, for outrageous ticket prices and $11 beers and Fifteen dollar, twenty four dollar parking, and all this, all this money. A lot of it goes to the players, and it, and it's because of our appreciation for their physical skills. So, um, it isn't surprising that they might turn to whatever can help them in in this desperate situation, because that's where the that's where the money is. And so, I now think of it as like, who cares, really, in a way. I don't want to. I don't want to say that in too big a way, but. Is Melky taking drugs? He may well be. Does that? Um, he may, but he may well not be. And I and we don't know. Um, and I I understand why they do. It's I, for me. It's less of a moral issue than one of the rules of the game. This also went to. I'm sorry. I'm now I'm running along a little bit long. But um, this went to the biogenesis thing where we've been told how baseball had this great drug testing, but then the majority of the guys who got who were suspended because of biogenesis never tested positive for any drugs. So if, if the test can be beaten, it's, um, it's really a big ghost of, a, of an idea of who's, who's taking drugs and who's not and whether we actually have any control over it. That, yeah. that went on for a bit longer than the actual. <laughs> That's fine. It's, it's a really interesting subject. I think you, you touch on something that really matters and should matter to fans who are thinking about this, and that is that it seems in a lot of ways, like the sport is trying to manage the perception of what's going on rather than the reality of what's going on. The uh, NFL, I think it was you that actually said the NFL has decided that their players are using and they don't care. 
and the fans know about it and they don't care and everybody's just going to go ahead not caring. Whereas in baseball... You test, and if you fail, you get you get a, a penalty and, and you just serve it and that's it. It's like, um, you know, a hockey player punching another guy. You take the penalty and then you get back out there. And baseball has very much created um, a moral panic about it, like that we have to, at all, at all stakes, rat out Alex Rodriguez, even though there's, there was, seems no apparent legal basis for it. Um, and that's exactly right. And uh, well, Joe Sheehan said on this program uh, not long ago that uh, the main reason baseball has done this is to create a, some leverage in, in the actual negotiation about who gets what share of the pie. And if they can make the, uh, put the players on the defensive with regard to this issue, that it puts them in a stronger negotiating position when they decide what the maximum salaries are going to be, whether there's going to be caps and constraints on salaries and so forth. Uh, it's a very interesting topic, and uh, I think that Put it this way, any baseball fan out there who thinks that the testing regime or the threat of punishment and so forth has eliminated PEDs from baseball is in living in a dreamland because, as you said, if there's a difference between playing AAA at 800 bucks a week and playing in the major leagues at $12 million a year, it's just such a tremendous economic incentive that obviously some people are going to take advantage of it. And the only people who get caught are the guys who do it stupidly. They write personal checks. Like remember uh, Jason Grimsley a few years ago was like accepting purolator parcels and, and signing for them and like leaving this obvious glaring paper trail or dealing with creeps like this guy at Biogenesis, maybe at Balco as well, who, who turned state's evidence at the first sign of trouble. And it's got to be fairly easy for a, a millionaire baseball player to get a hold of these PED materials without drawing attention to himself, to use them properly by paying a doctor to make sure everything's done on the up and up, and to pass the test by understanding how the tests work. Like I said, I think you're dreaming uh, if you think it's otherwise. Uh, Peter, you also are writing, uh, I saw this on your site, uh, is it a book or an ebook called The Ultimate Guide to Playing Fantasy Baseball? And I'm wondering what the details are about that. Well, I started a, a, um, a website called Rotoman's Guide, and as the place for rather than lump it in with the uh, reader questions and some and general baseball at askrotoman.com, as a place for um, more technical and structured um, writing about uh, fantasy baseball and the fantasy baseball results and strategies and. Um, and and some of the history of the game things I want to get into um, the ideas in, in, inherent in various um, roto constitutions and structures of the game whether deep or sh- or shallow or um, broad with deep reserve lists or you know there's a lot of different ways to play I wanted to have a place where I could write about that stuff and um, you'll see on the site there's an outline for a book that um, I'm planning on writing chunks of it this summer, and we'll see how that goes. I don't know how fast it's going to be because um, it need, because there's a lot of research involved, and the, uh, so I'm just going to take it as it comes. I'm putting, I'm going to post the chapters as they come along and the work, working chapters on the site, um, and there's an opportunity for people to support the site and essentially pre-order the finished book um, and get access to the materials while they're being written, and I don't know if that's that's been a, that's had some appeal for a few people, and um, maybe that'll help buy me some time to to do the work to finish the book in a 
more timely fashion, but um, I'm going to work on it as, as quickly as I can. The idea is not to write a book about, um, you know, how... Uh, the idea is not to write Larry Schechter's book about how right. to win, because um, cause Larry's already done it. And um, But to, to write a book about the ways to um, look at the various things that happen while you play the game. So uh, the way to look about what is actually information and what is... Um, what is kind of random happenstance that looks like information, and things things that I see that are patterns in terms of the way we the game is structured and um, makes us see things in certain ways. That sounds way more abstract than it, it actually is, but um, it's it's an attempt to to kind of collect all the um, high level thinking and and strategizing about the game in one place and kind of put it to some some real-world testing. Well, you know, it's going to appeal to that section of the fantasy baseball uh, playing crowd that appreciates the game as an intellectual exercise, which makes it sound very hoity-toity, but a lot of people like thinking about this stuff. When I started in, in fantasy baseball, one of the guys in my, ver- in my first league in which I still play we would get together and talk on the phone for literally hours talking about the strategies and tactics, not about who was winning the league or how people were doing in the league or, you know, the various tactical decisions they were making, but about the larger issues of how, how the strategies fit together and stuff. I think it's all real interesting. Of course. Uh, you also had an interesting series at that same, uh, site called the top 10 most misunderstood fantasy baseball concepts. And this was a very interesting series and I guess I should say spoiler alert because I want to talk about your number one most misunderstood concept, which is the whole idea of the salary cap. Because most people who play fantasy think that the salary cap is absolutely fundamental to the very core of the game. But you argue that, and I'm quoting Ira Gershwin, it ain't necessarily so. How can salary caps not be a f- fundamental part of the game? The, the salary cap is an artificial constraint. So my, my idea is but once we say we have $3,120 and we're going to distribute it among 108 pitchers and 168 hitters, we've solved the problem in a, in a way. There, there are, there's nuance, there's, there are little differences, but we all basically are going to agree on what the value in that universe of each of those players is. And, and that makes the game not less interesting, but it definitely solves the fundamental value question of how to value players. Once you take the that the thirty one twenty away, um, you then uh, the game becomes much more situational. You um, and this is where the details of um, how you d- take the salary cup away matter a lot. The the idea that I like is in a keeper league, instead of saying that um, it's thirty twenty each year, you say the the prize for first place is thousand dollars each year and the prize for second is one thousand and the prize for third is X and you and this is in a, a betting game of course but and that the um, you let the owners decide how much they want to spend in order to shoot for which which prize in, the, in that context in a keeper league you have multiple avenues you can have people with one-year strategies or two-year strategies and so at some point in the auction it might make sense for somebody who is would be bidding $25 for player X to say I really need that you know those 
24 home runs and 13 steals, I'm going to bid 29 for him, or I'm going to bid 34 for him. Um, it makes the game much more dynamic, and it takes away this restrictive upper limit, which once people start overpaying, overpaying, I, I use you know air quotes, once owners start overpaying in a league that has a 31-20 limit, you know that there's going to be bargains later. You can sit there and you can wait and pounce on those bargains. In this other type of game, you just don't know. You're going to have to you're going to have to put your team together by the seat of your pants, and to some extent, that strikes me as a little more baseball friendly. You offer an example of a no cap league you actually played in, where owners could literally spend as much as they wanted, and some of them spent very heavily. We're not talking about the difference between twenty nine dollars and thirty four dollars for a player, or you know two hundred and sixty dollars versus three twenty. You're talking about literally thousands and thousands of dollars these guys were willing to buck up. What was that experience like? It was it was exhilarating and it was fun. I didn't have the the bankroll to play against these guys, and one one thing. Um, they, they were, you know, real estate and banking guys and, and traders and things. And um, I played, it, it, we had a deeply um, graduated payout so that there was always something to play for down. And there were, it, the league basically split up into two groups. There was the, the high roller guys who spent lots of money and, the, and then there were the, the bottom feeders. And I, I tried to get from, from the bottom feeders feeding uh, budget into the top feeding group and it was the divide was just too great um, and I stopped playing after two years because it wasn't it, it wasn't the right format it wasn't a keeper league so it was it was very difficult to compete against the guys with all the money but um, but it was fun it was fun to you know to watch them bid guys up to more than what a regular roto budget is yeah you said in uh, in an article about it that uh, the competition devolved into tears, and you pointed out that the big spenders, the big dollar guys, were spending thousands, but if you won the league, you made money because of the percentage that went to that top spot. So there was a marginal efficiency there if you won the big tier. And then going down, as you got to like the, the lower tiers, a guy who finished eighth with a team you know, in the twelve to $1,800 range could maybe... Uh, pick up that eight, that eighth place prize was enough to get a little profit on what it cost to win eighth spot in the league. And then the bottom, uh, and then at the bottom, of course, you get 11th or 12th, you get nothing. That, se- that seems like an interesting thing, but it also s- seems like it would be pretty frustrating to not be in that top tier and knowing that there was absolutely no way that you could compete. It would be like being the Kansas City Royals uh, in the same league as the Yankees back in the 80s. Right. Um, the structure didn't work. That's why I think um, limiting the top prize and then distributing the money through the the lower tiers gives everyone an incentive to play and to play at uh, you know some rational level, but without a hard cap that stops you from spending more money if you if you feel like you need to to uh, make up for it. So it it, it then becomes a, a question of money management and and um, skills evaluation and a way of how do you how well you read your team. Rather than just oh, I, now I'm, I'm now I have to buy seven one dollar guys because I spent all my money. But Peter, if you you said one of the keys would be to cap the top prize, how, at whatever level you cap the top prize, doesn't that effectively cap the uh, the amount of salary that can be paid? No rational person is going to invest 
$2,001 in a roster that can at maximum only win 2000 He's guaranteed to lose money if he goes over $2,000 or whatever you set the top prize at. Right. Yeah, I, there definitely is a, um, there's a rational limit at the upper end, um, but that is not a hard and fast number. It's not a restrictive number. Um, somebody who had self-esteem issues might want to go, would be willing to spend the 2001 to win 2000 just to be the, you know, to get the trophy. I, it, and the point is that you can do it and that you can, um, but more likely it'll be that people will choose to invest a number that I think after a few years of playing, we'll know we would have a pretty good idea of what people are willing to invest to win the top prize. But, um, and then maybe, uh, I don't know how that, how that would work out. I don't know um, whether it would become almost as restrictive as the 3120, but I, I actually think not. I just don't think, um, I think it will give some latitude, which it would be a, a welcome thing. And that's, that was more what I was getting at than the, the Wild West dynamics of the league that I played in um, back in the, 10 years ago or so. Yeah, it's interesting. You also mentioned the the importance of having keepers because then at least it gives you the possibilities, shall we say, that you could play in on the cheap, try to put together a kind of super efficient money ball roster and at the same time be be very carefully uh, drafting and paying a dollar here, a dollar there for prospects and draft picks and so forth, hoping to build a competitive team two or three years down the road. But how do you keep the money bags guys from outbidding you on those guys too? Uh, that's that would be part of the rules drafting process. There would uh, it would, but it wouldn't be obviously. The Yankees could be smarter about the guys they they um, not that they draft because they're they don't get those top draft picks, but the way that um, Tampa did or the way Houston and Pittsburgh have recently. But um, the Yankees, with all their money, could be smarter about how they fill out their roster, and and um, so could so can the. the I think that's the the part of the game. The the thing that's res- most restrictive are the number of roster spots, right? And, and that's where a, a low budget could conceivably outcompete a team with a larger budget. I think that's exactly right. the uh, The constraint of money is only one of the two constraints that we face in in most fantasy baseball formats. The other one being the slots. And there, I know there are a lot of uh, Tell Wars guys and other fantasy experts who've always made the case that the slot itself has value and must be managed, just as the budget has value and must be managed. It would be really interesting if if you could figure out a way to get a league together where anybody could pay what they want and uh, figure out a way to make it an equitable competition that would allow, um, you know, a guy in who wants to spend five grand and a guy in who wants to spend 1400 and a guy in who wants to try 800 on the expectation that he could maybe make his 800 parlay into 12 if he finishes seventh or something like that and it could be profitable without winning the league, which is, in a way, what, the, what a lot of uh, professional sports franchises have become is a way to put money in and get more money out, irrespective of whether you win championships, except to the extent that winning championships brings in more revenue. I'm thinking of guys like uh, Jeff Loria in Miami, who's made a uh, very handsome living just gaming the system. <laughs> yep. And, and winning a, a championship. Almost seems like an afterthought, though, in, in that case. It, 
It's true. You know, if you if you do things right, there's a way that you can actually beat the uh, New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox. Tampa does it pretty regularly now, and Oakland has been very successful at it. It would be cool to be able to try it as a as a person on a much lower scale. You know, you're not investing hundreds of millions or billions of dollars like the Dodgers owners. Uh, it's a really interesting concept, and it's great to read about and think about. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Peter Kreutzer from AskRotoman.com, Tout Wars Commissioner. And Peter, you're also involved, I see, in a new project to help fantasy owners understand and manage prospects in the game. Uh, what is this project, and how are you involved? Well, um, J.D. Bollock has been writing um, prospect profiles for the baseball guide and for the fantasy um, football guide for 14 years now. And um, over the years, we've talked about doing something um, a little bi- a lot bigger than what we can fit in the magazine. And um, this year, he, he actually... Um, wrote what's essentially a, a book, a guide to the top 120 prospects in baseball, um, 60 from each league, um, with an eye towards their fantasy value rather than their prospect value. So guys who, so the notes are about their ability to hit, about their ability to run and, and um, produce them in the, in the fantasy categories, and, not so, and with notes about how a guy who might be uh, a great, a great prospect in real baseball, like uh, um, what's his name in, in Chicago, uh, Almora, is is not really going to be a big fantasy player, probably. And so uh, he he wrote the book up, and um, we she finished it in the in the springtime. And um, I have to say, I dropped the ball a little bit. We didn't get started on it right away. And then um, when I finally read it, I said, holy cow, we should get this out, at least to test the waters, to find out what people are looking for in a, in a book like this, and, um, and get some feedback about, uh, about the format. We, we don't have any stats in this year's issue because, um, it, because it, was, it was all a little too late. So not, not apologizing for any of that, just saying it's a, it, this is the first draft of it, um, the first iteration of what I hope is going to be a long series of um, e-books that'll come out at, before the season that'll serve as a um, prospect guide to fantasy play, for fantasy players um, that they can use all, all season long. You mentioned that some top prospects, as they're rated by Baseball America and, and those kind of organizations that are looking at these guys as prospects for real baseball, and that includes a lot of aspects, as you mentioned, that don't actually apply to most fantasy formats. But what about the proposition that if, say, you have a prospect who has a really good glove or tremendous throwing arm or some other characteristic outside the realm of fantasy, but it helps him keep his job, you know, th- th- does that not have enough value to count? Well, we don't, uh, I, I shouldn't say we, um, JD didn't disregard these guys. He just um, has them, he has them more ranked as a low risk low reward guy right now that he's not he doesn't look like he's going to be a big fantasy help but he's going to be a major leaguer for sure and and you know it's, it's definitely worth keeping an eye on i remember just because this is perhaps one of the most um profound examples that of ozzy as a you know great glove no hit shortstop who then became a pretty good off player and a, and a help for fantasy teams um these guys the best the best prospects are the best for the most part, the best athletes, and they, their skills continue to develop. 
Yadier Molina is another example of a guy who wasn't much of a bat yeah. for a while and, and in the last number of years has become one of the best offensive catchers in baseball. Um, so it's it's not trying to put a put these guys in a box. It's just saying at this time this is the way they're looking and, and this is the way when you're putting together your reserve list or your farm team, these are the, these are the guys you should look at and, and the reasons why. Well said. Uh, Peter, I always like to close out the uh, show asking our expert guests on the Tuesday Tout Edition for some player picks. We're looking for studs and duds, uh, studs being guys you think could be helpful and overperform their expectations, and duds being the guys, established stars or lesser players who will disappoint you over the course of a season. Uh, let's start with the studs, if you don't mind. Uh, how about an American League hitter that at some point you wouldn't mind having on one of your rosters? I'd like to have Mike Trout on my roster. <laughs> um, oh, actually, I do in the XFL. So, um, but obviously, this the who who gets named is is kind of arbitrary here. But um, so I, I put together some notes on guys who I thought ha- I had something interesting to say about them, and hopefully they they fit the categories here. The guy I think you know I I was a little wary of Jose Abreu and. A weekend, I'd say <laughs> um, I was an idiot, right? It's, he's um, he looks fantastic. He's yes. you know doing unprecedented things, and um, I don't know. It, it, I'm not wary anymore, and I wish that I I uh, had the sense to overbid for him. Remember, uh, before the season, a lot of people were saying, oh, wait till he gets that cold weather in Chicago. He won't be uh, swinging the bat quite as great as everybody thinks. Uh, yeah, maybe he will, on the other hand. Uh, how about a National League hitter in that same situation, a guy you think has uh, got some great upside? Well, I think there are two hitters in the National League who are, are real difference makers, and, and those are, I mean, the hitters, offensive players. Hanley Ramirez is one, I, and I own him in, in Towers. The other is, is uh, Carlos Gonzalez, who um, is healthy right now and is off to a fantastic start. His, the durability is an issue for him. He misses. He, he's missed a bunch of games the last few years. But even so, he's one of the top producing outfielders. When he's down, you can replace him with somebody. And um, you know, I I think he's he's a giant in in the National League who gets overlooked a little bit. Not overlooked, but is discounted a little bit because of the injuries. Um, and then the the guy who just emerged, the kind of sleeper guy, um, is Danny Espinosa who um, is, it seems to be in a good position to get some more at-bats because of um, the Zimmerman arthritis. And, um, and it, who is a, a, he's, not, he's not a classically good hitter, but he could be fantasy productive um, at, a minute, at second base. So um, it's somebody to keep an eye on, not to go crazy over, but um, he could emerge as, as a, you know, a little bit of a surprise. I like the point you made about Carlos Gonzalez, and it made me think earlier we were talking about the fungibility of outfielders as a reason to to spend your one, two, three, four, five dollar bids on those and spend your bigger money on other positions. But it actually kind of, in a shallow league, adds value to a Carlos Gonzalez because of the um, extra value you're going to get for his injury replacement should he not make it all the way through the year. It's an interesting point. How about an American League pitcher you could uh, see reaping a good profit? The... Um in my in my AL league, I, I bought Kyle Gibson for a dollar at the end, and I was um, overjoyed. And, and then I, I'm not overjoyed. I was happy. I was pleased by that. Um, and um, and then I watched him pitch the other day, and 
he's he's still got a ways to go. He's um, I I'd seen him last year, and he he got beat up a lot last year. But but the reports have been pretty good in the in spring training. Um, he he looked good the other day. Um, he still has he still has some work to do with I think with confidence and and some command issues. But um, but I could see him being a really nice surprise this year, and I I don't think it's just wishful thinking on my own on my own behalf. And finally, a National League pitcher you like? Well, the, the, so coming out of Tower Wars, the, the in my high variance stars and scrubs strategy, my goal was to, to end up with um, Tanner Rourke and and Jenry Mejia, and and to hopefully um, get Joe Kelly. Joe, yeah, Joe Kelly, um, Joe Kelly. But the um, both Mejia and Kelly got away, and um, I uh, I did end up with Rourke, who's who's fine, but not he's the least of them. I I think Mejia got lit up a little bit last night, but he's got a great arm and um, is, it could be a breakout type starter this year. And uh, it was I, I regret not not landing him. So I, I pick him. So Jose Abreu, Hanley Ramirez, Carlos Gonzalez, Danny Espinosa, Kyle Gibson, and Henry Mejia are Peter Kreutzer's stud picks. Now we'll go to the duds. How about an American League hitter that you would not accept in trade, would not pick up, don't want on your roster? I'd say um, Trevor Plouffe. And it isn't his name, which is awful. And But um, it all goes back to when he came up a couple of years ago was he he pushed Ben Revere aside, and for no good reason, Ron Gardenhire started playing Ploof, and Ploof started hitting home runs. It was a disaster for my team, and so anytime I'm asked about who I don't want, what American League hitter I don't want, it's it's him, Trevor Ploof. He's but he's actually turned out to be a little bit more productive than I expected him to be. Um, but uh, you won't find him on my team. How about a National League hitter that you won't roster for whatever reason? Well, so. The big question this spring training was Billy Hamilton, and we don't have the answer yet exactly what to do with him. But I, at the prices he was going, I thought it, there were two things about it. One, that if you were going to spend in the mid-20s for him, you needed to, he needed to be your stolen base play. Like, you couldn't back him up. You couldn't spend any money. You couldn't afford to spend any money on anybody else to steal bases. And, but I saw a lot of people doing that, and I, and I think that was a, a mistake. Now that he he's stolen a couple bases, maybe he'll bust out and be as great and as uh, as electric on the field, despite you know probably hitting two ten as as he could be. But um, I I would have just stayed away from him because of the, all the options he took off the table, and I and I would still stay away from him. I think at this point um, because of his because of those limitations. And how about on the mound, an American League pitcher that you just don't want? This is a really hard one because. I, it's just like it's either going out on a limb for something that doesn't really make sense, or I, Mike Pelfrey is just terrible. So I would say shooting fish in a barrel. I don't want Mike Pelfrey. <laughs> a lot of twins uh, popping up on this uh, section of studs and duds. How about a National League pitcher to avoid? The, the poster child here is Tim Lincecum, and um, he's he's. It's so odd. He's he's. Striking guys out still. He's still. He's not walking guys, but he's just getting pounded. Um, maybe he should walk a few more guys. I don't know, but um, it, 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 he's the the poster child for what happens. Lose a couple of miles. Per 
per hour and and um, don't have some other thing to get you an, an advantage. And I don't know the answer to it. I I still kind of believe he's going to have a good season at some point, but um, but I I wouldn't roster him at this point. I don't think the, I don't think we know how far the bottom is unless he does solve it. So Peter Kreutzer's duds are Trevor Plouffe and Mike Pelfrey of the Twins, Billy Hamilton, and Tim Lincecum. Peter, uh, thanks very much for doing this. This has been great. Uh, tell our listeners how they can keep up with everything you've got going on, and it's a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, I've got a lot of a lot of spoons in the soup. Um, I'm, the best way to to follow is uh, blog at askrotoman.com. Almost everything I do gets referenced there from time to time. I'd, uh, the other place I'd recommend is. Um, Patton and Co. P a t t o n a n d c o dot com, which is a just a great discussion board for um, talk about individual players. Um, every some discussion going about them, and as well as strategies and deep thoughts and all of that stuff too. So it's uh, that's the other that's the place you'll find me most most every day. And do you have a Twitter feed that uh, gets that kind of stuff out there as well? Oh, uh, hashtag uh, K-R-O-Y-T-E is my, is my Twitter, which um, I, do, I do post links to it and occasionally make wisecracks. Peter, thanks very much for doing this again. It's been uh, terrific fun and very informative. Uh, I hope I can catch up with you again during the year. Well, th- thanks for having me. It's, it's always fun talking to you. Peter Kreutzer is a longtime writer at Ask Rotoman and the newer Rotomansguide.com and the commissioner of Tell Wars. When we come back, we'll have the Metric Minute and the Minor League Minute. Stay right here. It's Baseball HQ Radio. Here comes Roger Maris. Just standing up, waiting to see if Maris is going to hit number 61. Here's the windup. The pitch to Roger, way outside, ball one. And the fans are starting to boo. Low ball two, that one was in the dirt. And the boos get louder. Two balls, no strikes on Roger Maris. Here's the windup. Fast ball hit deep to right. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Be sure to check BaseballHQ.com right now and in the coming days for these features. Matt Cederholm looks at managing an unbalanced roster in his rotisserie column. Interesting idea. Lots of us come out of draft with a few too many of this and a few too few of that. Dan Becker looks at early most added hitters in his batting buyer's guide column. And Glenn Lowy looks at the slow start by the HQ team in the NFBC. Plus, we have all our regular analysis of playing time, facts and flukes, our buyer's guides, divisional outlooks, and more. Fantasy intelligence for winners all the time at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our Baseball HQ commentaries. We have minor league analyst Rob Gordon on deck with the Minor League Minute. And leading off, it's the Metric Minute. Telling us about starting pitcher ratings, here's analyst Ryan Bloomfield. This week, we'll take a look at the starting pitching report scores in the Metric Minute. Though the starting pitching report was highlighted in Masters Notes by Ray Murphy on Baseball HQ Radio last week, it deserves a second mention here given how useful it is for in-season management. Your SP report scores are all based on the pure quality start metric, which we introduced last week in the Metric Minute. Again, these PQS scores evaluate each start 
on a 0-5 to five score based on the skills that the starters showed in that outing. The point of the, the starting pitching report scores are to try to take those PQS scores uh, to quantify how a pitcher might do for an upcoming outing. He considers the starter's skills, the opponent that he's facing, as well as home and road and lefty-righty splits to get a single number uh, for the score for the upcoming start. It's calculated based on two parts. The first is the pitcher's um, average PQS score home or away over the course of the season, so the pitcher skill itself. The second part analyzes the opposing lineup. So we get an average PQS score against opposing pitchers against that lineup split by lefty-righty as well as home and away. So the score is calculated based on those two values. For example, if a lefty starter coming up has an average PQS score of 4.0 at home this year, um, and then lefties on the road against the opposing lineup um, have averaged a PQS score of 3, then your resulting score is based on those two numbers. In this case, it would be a uh, starting pitching report score of 2. Um, the, the, the scores range on a negative 5 to a positive 5 scale, where anything above a 2.0 is essentially a must start, while anything below 0 is a must sit, and 0 to 2 um, between that range are, are more neutral. The, the starting pitching report is updated daily on BaseballHQ.com. It can be viewed either for the upcoming day for daily leagues or across the next eight days to help you with those essential two-start pitcher decisions uh, for weekly leagues. But no matter what format you play, you'll want to use this tool heavily to help your starting pitcher sit-start decisions throughout the season. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Analyst Ryan Bloomfield writes regularly for BaseballHQ.com and talks about various site metrics and how to use them every Tuesday here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for the Minor League Minute, and with a look at Boston second base prospect Mookie Betts, here's Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. In this week's edition of the Minor League Minute, we take a look at the Boston Red Sox second base prospect Mookie Betts. The fifth-round pick out of high school in Tennessee has exceeded expectations and is quickly establishing himself as one of the best second base prospects in the American League. The 21-year-old Betts gets a surprising pop from his 5'9", 155-pound frame. In 2013, he had an impressive breakout season that saw him hit 314 with a very impressive 417 on base percentage and a 506 slugging percentage. He hit 36 doubles and 15 home runs and stole 38 bases. Betts has an advanced approach at the plate and last year walked 81 times while striking out just 57 for a 90% contact rate, which is excellent. He has a quick, compact stroke and should continue to put up solid offensive production as he moves closer to the majors. Defensively, Betts is a plus defender with good range for the position, thick hands, and a strong arm. Betts is off to a quick start this year, going 15 for 32 with three stolen bases and six extra base hits in his first eight contests. With Dustin Pedroia blocking his path to the majors, the Red Sox have no need to rush Betts. But if he continues to hit like this, they'll have to find some way to get his bat in their lineup and he makes an excellent keeper in all deep AL-only formats. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Colby Garropy, Chris Maloney, and Brent Hershey have reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. BaseballHQ.com's call-up reports this week have looked at Arizona right-handed starter Mike Bolsinger and Washington infielder Zach Walters, as well as others. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. 
And that's Baseball HQ Radio, our Tuesday Tout Edition for April the 15th. Thanks very much for taking the time away from your taxes to download and listen to show number 25 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our featured guest expert today, longtime writer at AskRotoman.com and RotomansGuide.com, Tout Wars Commissioner Peter Kreutzer. Peter spends a lot of time thinking about fantasy baseball, as I'm sure you could tell, and he's a terrific guest. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Metric Minute commentator was analyst Ryan Bloomfield, and prospects analyst Rob Gordon had the Minor League Minute. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio, and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Also, check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. Also, feel free to follow my personal Twitter account, at Patrick Davitt. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with our News and Notes show, featuring League Watch News reports, Todd, Zola, and Master Notes. And next Tuesday, it'll be another edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>